Hello and welcome to the latest Sustainable Finance Guernsey podcast, which is rated one of the top 10 most useful sustainable finance podcasts by Green Finance Guide. Guernsey is one of the jurisdictions leading the way in green and sustainable finance. And as part of this podcast series, we speak to and we learn from some of the leading global figures in the field. My name is Rosie Alsop. I'm Communications Director at Guernsey Finance, the promotional agency for Guernsey's financial services industry. And today I am delighted to be joined by Amy Pickering, Ali Cambray and James King from PwC. Today, as well as topical trends in sustainable finance, we'll also be discussing biodiversity and the impact on business. So PwC kindly sponsored Guernsey Finance's Sustainable Finance Week Day on biodiversity and innovation in the funds and private wealth space. And we're hugely grateful for that. Uh, and I'd like to welcome Amy, Ali and James. Hello, everyone. Hi, Rosie. Hi. Thanks very Hello. much for having us this morning. So firstly, can you tell us a bit about yourselves and your work at PwC? Amy, can I start with you, please? Yeah, sure. Good morning, Rosie. Happy to be with this. Um, I'm Amy Pickering. I'm a director at PwC here in Guernsey, and I work in both financial audit and lead the ESG assurance practice for PwC Channel Islands. I moved over from South Africa and joined PwC about 10 years ago now, joining as a financial auditor, but over the past four years or so, I have been supporting the audit practice with ESG and climate consideration. Obviously, it's becoming a lot more relevant in terms of risk and reporting from a financial audit perspective and also working on our assurance services over sustainability reporting. Lovely. It's great to have you. Ali. Hi there, Rosie. So, yeah, I'm Ali Cambray. Um, I'm a director at PwC Channel Islands. On the advisory side, I lead our sustainability consulting services. Um, I'm a career sustainability and climate change specialist, and um, we provide services both to government and financial services clients here. Um, particularly around sustainability strategy, um, reporting and business integration. So great to be here. It's great to have you. And James, welcome to the pod. Thank you for having me, Rosie. Um, yeah, so I sit in PwC sustainability consulting team in London, um, where I lead a lot of our work on nature finance. Um, at the moment, especially interested in how public finance and public policy can be used to really scale private investment to bridge the nature finance gap we currently face. I'm sure we'll go into that in lots more detail later on. Uh, so currently having lots of conversations, both with UK government, multilateral organizations, and uh, finance institutions across the whole spectrum of investing. Well, it's lovely to have you all with us. So, um, Amy, I understand that you screened the Save Our Wild Isles film, uh, Banking on a Wild Tomorrow, for your fringe event that you did back in September. Uh, for Sustainable Finance Week. And that was followed by uh, a panel session unpicking the ways in which the finance center can, uh, finance sector rather, can help solve the nature crisis. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Sure. And yes, that's right, Rosie. I think it's, I thought it was a really powerful film. It set the scene beautifully with the stunning wildlife footage. Um, and it also really well articulates the urgency and the call to action by business. Uh, there were some staggering numbers in the film about the size and the scale of nature loss globally and in the UK. And I, I think what would have really hit home with the audience is the economic dependency that we all have on nature. We also then linked it back to PwC's own research and work 
uh, which has identified over 55% of global GDP is either moderately or highly dependent on nature. Um, and then we then followed with a panel discussion and moved on to what we can all do as business leaders, as financial services industry leaders here in Guernsey, um, and some practical actions to, th to think about. Oh, that's interesting. And in terms of those numbers and 55% of GDP being dependent on nature, Ali, can you unpick that for me? Uh, which sectors and why is that relevant for Guernsey in its role as an international finance centre? Sure, Rosie, really happy to. Um, really, we see first started um, undertaking this kind of analysis to quantify the scale of exposure to nature risk back in 2019, actually. And early this year, we re-ran the analysis given the kind of direction of travel. Um, and what it did is, as you were alluding to, um, it broke down the percentage of economic value in each sector, industry sector globally, that is dependent on nature, looking through three different lenses. First of all, and this is the one that might be the most obvious to think about, you know, what's the extent to which um, direct operations in each of those sectors are exposed to uh, or are dependent on nature and ecosystem services? But there's also two other dimensions as well. There's the upstream. So how is the supply chain that those operations depend on exposed to nature, particularly when that's looking at raw materials and natural resources, perhaps? Um, but also really interesting, there's a downstream element. This is really interesting. Um, what is the extent to which the ability of the customers of those goods and services are dependent on nature to be able to access those goods and services and to use them. So it, that's a little bit more complex, perhaps, in some contexts. But anyway, um, probably no surprise that if you look across different sectors and their dependency to nature, the top five ones are primary industries such as agriculture, forestry, fishery and aquaculture, uh, the food system and construction. They're all at the greatest risk, uh, greatest exposure to nature. Um, certainly, the film that we were we, that we screened really highlighted that the global food system is the biggest driver of ecosystem collapse, and that really aligns with that analysis. Um, construction, I think, is also a really interesting one, an important one, given our exposure to the real estate industry here in the Channel Islands. Um, going down, then the research also then analysed the next eleven sectors that sort of more sort of moderately exposed to nature, and again, looking through those three lenses. Um, and again, really relevant um, for our Channel Islands market here, um, sectors to do with energy, real estate, electronics, chemicals, materials, many of those that we invest in um, through the islands. Um, I think the key point, though, to come on to the second part of your question is that for us in Guernsey, in the finance sector, it's our role as a conduit of capital is where it becomes really important to think about what are the economic activities that we are financing? And what are they exposed to? And indeed, if we thought of Guernsey as an industry um, on, these kind of, on this kind of analysis, we'd expect to see pretty high downstream dependency on nature, particularly where we're financing those priority sectors, and perhaps also some upstream dependency too, depending on source of wealth for those who invest through the islands. Um, I think the final part of the analysis, which was new this year, and I think is really interesting, um, and where there is more data available, is um, in the listed capital markets. So another part of our analysis looked at shareholders' dependent, nature dependencies for the 19 major stock exchanges around the world. And again, the, na the nature dependency um, of those listings is close to that of the global economy. 
just over half the listed company value. So that's about US, um, about 45 trillion US dollars is exposed to financial risk through high or moderate nature exposure. Um, we think it'd be really interesting to extend that analysis to the, the uh, International Stock Exchange here in Guernsey. Um, so we'll keep you posted if we're able to do that analysis. Um, but what about the other side, opportunity? Um, do you think there's an investment opportunity in financing nature recovery and restoration? And, you know, if that's the case, where exactly are the big opportunities for investment? James, can I bring you in here at this point, please? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I really hope there's an opportunity, both from a personal perspective in terms of um, reversing the biodiversity and nature crisis within and selfishly professionally, given where I've chosen to build my career. Um, but no, I, th- I, think, I think given what Ali just said in terms of how dependent the economy is on nature and biodiversity for our functioning, um, the, the other side of the coin means there must be a massive opportunity. And uh, I think I remember reading a report from the UN Climate Champions, uh, which put out that um, tapping solutions for a net zero nature positive and all the buzzwords, resilient food systems, so just the food system alone, that's expected to generate up to $4.5 trillion of new business opportunities annually by 2030. So and that's just one element of, of nature and biodiversity and um, the problems we've got to overturn, especially by 2030 in this critical decade. Um, I think it can be hard to envisage what those opportunities are. Um, I think the idea of investing in nature can be quite alien concept, especially when you consider... Uh, to some extent, it was our economic systems and failing to adequately account for nature and its services that has got us in to this mess that we're now currently in. Um, but I do firmly believe there are responsible ways to go about it. Uh, so we did what all good consultants do, and we wrote a report. Uh, and we looked to understand and break down, create enormous sort of typology of what the different nature-related investment opportunities are out there at the moment. And uh, we came up with three very simple, very high-level categories. The first one actually very familiar to most people, and that's around sustainable commodities, so sustainable timber. But I think the other one, the really, really crucial one, um, is regenerative agriculture. And I think it's a phrase which still has to be more clearly defined. I think some important guardrails put around what counts as truly regenerative agriculture. But I think it's a topic we're going to hear more and more about over the next few years, especially at COP28 in a few months, where for the first time ever, nature has been properly put on the agenda there. Suddenly, it's okay to talk about food and farming systems in, in terms of the journey to net zero, which is a really exciting, positive development. Um, and I think that's critical because food is to the nature transition what energy is to net zero. Um, you know, I think we hear a lot of talk around 30 by 30 and so this idea that countries committed uh, last year in Montreal to protect 30% of land and marine areas by 2030, which is an amazing agreement. However, there is no point achieving 30 by 30 if we then trash the other 70% of land. And I think that's where our food system reform and the opportunity for investing in farming and food system practices that actually protect and restore nature and biodiversity is a massive opportunity there. Um, the second category we came up with is, we call it payment for ecosystem services, which again, quite fancy technical language, but something most listeners would be very familiar with. And two types we um identified one around carbon credits in particular natural climate solutions that generate carbon credits clear revenue opportunity there don't get me wrong carbon markets are facing many issues and a little turning point at the moment in terms of legitimacy and transparency but there's no reason to believe that that can't be worked through 
to create fully functioning compliance driven and really scalable voluntary markets. Uh, the other area, which is much more nascent, but uh, very exciting to look at, uh, but will take a lot of a lot of work to implement in a high integrity way is um, biodiversity credit markets, similar concept to carbon credits, a lot more complex to um, a lot more complex to actually put into place because, uh, you know, while a ton of carbon in Croydon is the same as a ton of carbon Colombia, you can't say the same for nature is very localized. So credit markets have to be localized, but there's still an emerging investment opportunity there. And we can get into that in a bit more detail later on, perhaps. Um, and the final area we talked about was investments that support the enabling environment for nature and biodiversity protection and restoration. And in particular, that's um, products and services that help businesses and governments to uh, monitor, report, and verify the changes that are being enacted to the natural environment. Um, and this is important for two reasons. Well, first is we said we've got that massive target of 30 by 30. So how are governments going to know that they've achieved that? unless they've got access to products and services that help them to at scale and affordably monitor changes in the natural environment. And the second is, and what I think we might discuss this later, is a big barrier to scaling investment in nature and biodiversity from the financial institutions perspective is a lack of access to that high quality and affordable data that gives them trust and confidence in the outcomes that they are financing. Um, so again, increased investment in this part of the, um, well, the finance ecosystem for, for nature without wanting to put too much of a pun on it will have double benefits in terms of both direct monitoring of the outcomes being achieved but also having to give investors more confidence to scale their investment um consciously talked for quite a while this question but i think it's worth saying within this typology we're already starting to see a sort of growth of innovative products to really enable and scale that investment in nature um so depth and nature swaps really interesting concept which bring about both benefits for uh, nature and biodiversity, but also economic development opportunities. Um, seen very eye-catching conservation bonds, so rhino bonds, um, really interesting narrative there to, for listeners to look up. Uh, I think also we're going to see more nature-related sustainability-linked loans and sustainability-linked bonds. At the moment, that's very dominated by climate, but now you've got frameworks such as TNFD um, being launched and more agreed standardized sets of metrics paves the way for more nature-related SLLs and SLBs. And then we're also seeing more and more everyday nature-focused funds, which provides an opportunity for institutional investors to reallocate capital at scale towards nature. These are some really interesting examples. Thanks, James. Um, what about interdependency between climate and nature? Um, with increasing numbers of businesses and financial institutions and investment companies that we have uh, in Guernsey now covered by net zero commitments, more and more of them are also making disclosures on climate risk. Do you think that means we should all be making changes to our climate strategies, uh, Amy? Good question. There is a really clear interdependency between climate and nature, and a good reason they're often called the twin crises. We can't protect and restore nature without addressing climate change, and we can't achieve net zero without nature. So really, a narrow focus on carbon reduction will miss will we'll risk missing uh, that wider picture in terms of nature. Um, but when we, we at PwC discuss climate strategies with our clients, our view has always been um, that a comprehensive climate strategy needs to be more than just climate reduction. It needs to look at that wider climate risk piece. So thinking about resilience, adaptation, society, and critically, a just transition. 
So we would argue that a responsible and rounded approach to considering and addressing climate change risk and opportunity in the round would need to include nature anywhere, especially if businesses are operating or investing in the higher dependency sectors uh, that Ali talked about earlier. And really, boards in Guernsey are already required to consider the impact of climate change on their business strategy and on their risk profile by the GFSC's finance sector code of corporate governance, um, and actually potentially further regulatory drivers if operating in, in, in further territories or jurisdictions. So to a large degree, it's actually more about expanding that focus to incorporate nature uh, as opposed to any whole-scale changes to, to strategy. Yeah, and the case seems clear, but if I understand correctly, there is still uh, a significant financing gap on nature. James, maybe you can talk us through a few of those big barriers to financing nature and why private investment is still well below where it needs to be, and maybe what we can do to close that gap. Yeah, yeah of course. Um, I mean, there's a lot of talk about this nature financing gap, and the exact number varies depending on source, one commonly quoted stat just to give an idea of the scale is expected as about 700 billion dollar a year financing gap for nature so it's massive and of the limited finance that is flowing towards nature at the moment you know 83 percent of that is from public sources governments philanthropies multilateral institutions so they're kind of maxed out to some extent on the budget especially when you consider all the pressures on public finance at the moment so it really needs to come from the private sector um yeah, so what are the key barriers? I mean, they're not, they probably won't be that surprising to listeners when you, when you think about what a nature-related investment opportunity looks like. Um, and the main, main one is, I think at the moment, just because of the way we still value nature, maybe some of the way the products are structured and actually in terms of the demand side for nature-related products, financial products, um, investments should generate returns that are too low. Um, you're going to struggle at the moment to find many nature-related investment opportunities that reach double-digit returns and in a high interest rate environment that's just much that's just not attractive enough for commercial investors um or on the flip side they take too long to provide returns um you know if you've got private equity houses operating on seven-year return timelines um nature restoration can take you know, decades sometimes in the case of, you know, a forest-based environment. Um, I think related to both these issues, uh, it's still a very nascent market. So for sort of institutional investors, the investment opportunity is just too small. Uh, and that just means the transaction costs in terms of the due diligence required on each opportunity and makes it too high to be an attractive proposition. Um, I think all of this is exacerbated by probably the third factor, which is just we have limited investor experience outside of real specialist outfits of nature finance and opportunity, but also the novel risks that come about with investing in in nature. I mean, particularly with regards to sort of gender equality and social inclusion considerations when you're doing land-based investments, especially, well, in, in all markets, I was going to say especially emerging economies, but that's not the case. In all markets, you know, land tenure rights becomes a, a, a massive issue to have to be navigated extremely sensitively. Um, and that can, I think, you know, frighten investors off. Um, and the final one is that what I mentioned earlier in terms of that lack of access to high quality and affordable data. But how can it be tackled? Um, it's not easy. I think what is helping is to say that growing suite of innovative products. I think uh, investment mandates shifting slightly in terms of to allow for the fact that maybe a nature-related investment won't generate traditionally the return profiles they'd expected. 
uh, I think especially there's a lot of promise from sort of more private wealth sources. So family offices, VC funds, private equity, which maybe don't have the same sort of shareholder pressure. Seeing a lot of interest around investment in nature, especially with this whole intergenerational wealth transfer that's happening at the moment. Um, but yeah, how can you tackle it? I think efforts to aggregate projects so that the investment opportunity reaches the size and scale that's of interest to investors um, is crucial. Easier said than done, but we're seeing some innovation in this area, for example, farming clusters to support regen ag projects at scale. Um, another crucial one is increasing access to blended finance. So this is where you can use that limited public finance that is available to help de-risk and incentivize private capital. Um, I think the third one is just education, podcasts like this, but also I think more formalized uh, technical assistance programs, again, using the limits of public finance or philanthropic finance to upskill both investors on the opportunity and how to navigate some of those novel risks. But on the flip side, um, working with project developers to improve the bankability. A lot of people operating in this space um, perhaps don't have a commercial background. So understanding how to structure an, an investment pitch um, is really simple education upskilling to provide that can be incredibly impactful. And we saw that on the climate finance journey we went on in terms of just how that simple injection of expertise can make a massive difference. Um, yeah, I think the final one goes without saying is just, again, increased investment in monitoring, reporting, verification services. So that data and technology piece is crucial as with um, most areas of society these days. Yeah, absolutely. And, and let's bring it home for a minute. What opportunities are there, do you think, for us here in Guernsey? Um, well, I will, as someone who's not based in Guernsey, I will defer to my colleagues, Amy and Ali, on the expertise in terms of that opportunity. But, um, I mean, we released a, a paper a few weeks ago with the City of London Corporation about what the opportunity for the UK as a whole is in terms of become a global centre for nature finance, because that role is just currently sitting vacant. You know, there's it's 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 there waiting for a finance centre to really pick up the gauntlet and run with it. Um, and that obviously, you know, if if the UK were to become that global centre for nature finance with uh, capital flows for nature being channeled through the UK or nature-related deals and products being structured here, drawing on this amazing existing green finance expertise and capabilities we have, there's a clear economic and job creation opportunity for um, multiple different regions. You know, we've got obviously London is ranked number one in terms of um, cities with green finance expertise, but Edinburgh is ranked 14th. There's, you know, there's growing capability all over the country. It doesn't just have to be a London-centric endeavor. It can be really be a, a UK-wide endeavor to drive this. Um, I mean, before I hand it to Amy Ali, I think it's also worth saying though that that's not just going to happen Naturally, we do need to see a few things to facilitate this for the UK to become that global centre. It's exceptionally well-placed, but we probably need a bit more signalling and policy certainty for finance institutions to, and professional services firms to double down on this and invest in upskilling the workforce to provide those services. Um, so in particular, maybe a bit more articulation from the UK government about how it's going to meet it, uh, its commitments under the Global Biodiversity Framework will provide that clear north star the direction the country's heading in um like i said i think we've got very good institutions as a country for supporting that access to concessional capital and that will help to de-risk opportunities in the short medium term so for example british international investment or uk export finance done amazing work on climate but working as institutions to expand the opportunity around nature can really help to then 
channel investment flows through the UK and then globally. Um, I think anything that can be done to continue to grow these innovative financial products, particularly around biodiversity credits. I think if we were running this podcast 18 months ago, I probably wouldn't even mention them. But the way that the, that the meaningful dialogue and action has accelerated the last 18 months in this regard is, is quite astonishing. So obviously, we've got biodiversity net gain legislation in the UK coming into force, I think, January next year. I'm conscious of time, and um, I'm definitely no BNG expert, so I won't go into detail. There's, there's lots of great content out there if you just want to learn more about that. But I think there's an opportunity to expand that net gain legislation. It's just for property developers at the moment, where if you look at Colombia's equivalent legislation, that also covers other sectors such as um, mining or um, not just commercial property development, all sorts of property development and land use. Uh, but we could also expand that to marine net gain. We've got massive coastline in this country. It doesn't, shouldn't just be terrestrial biodiversity net gain. And I think continuing the efforts that the UK government started on in terms of uh, developing really clear, robust standards for voluntary markets. Um, and the final one is just building on the UK's world-leading regulatory architecture for sustainability um, to really embed nature at the heart of that and then the one thing that has to be called out is anything can be done to encourage businesses in the short term to voluntarily align reporting with new tnfd standards with the hope that that then becomes increasingly mandatory um for more and more parts of the economy but um yeah i mean amy ali from from the guernsey or channel islands perspective specifically yeah no thank no i'm happy to pick that up and um Hopefully, Rosie, what the listeners will be picking up is just the scale and the size of the opportunity that's on the table here, um, which is really exciting. And I think if we were to boil it down into sort of three practical things um, that we could focus on in the Guernsey context, and I think for that, I, I would sort of draw on this, this concept we often talk about um, when we think about sustainable finance around this dual concept of both greening finance and financing green. As I say, I think there's three things. So I think the first thing, of course, if you listen to that great big exciting list of opportunities around new fun, um, new concepts in terms of nature financing and all the opportunities we have to, 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 to plug that investment gap, um, there's this real opportunity for Guernsey. If you think about it, it's, it, what it's known for as a centre for alternatives of everything from venture capital through to private equity, more patient capital, and the insurance link securities. Um, it, we can seriously look at what the opportunities are for us as a jurisdiction arising from some of these innovative market tools um, so that we can play our part in investing in nature at scale. I think there's particular opportunities around some of the debt instruments and also some of those capital products. Um, we, of course, have got some of the architecture here, which is really helpful, particularly that Guernsey natural capital regime. So I really like to see how that could be used. Um, um, and I think there's already some really interesting sort of nascent collaborations uh, on the islands, which I think could be really exciting. So it's it's playing our part in that, that shift to capital. On the other side, on the greening finance side, if you like, um, certainly, I mean, James touched on at the end, and we might talk about it later around the kind of emerging um, uh, sort of supervisory context and disclosure frameworks around nature and particularly exposure to nature risk. Um, certainly, we're expecting um, both Channel Islands eventually to ultimately follow suit behind the UK and a number of other of, of, uh, jurisdictions um, 
down the line to really make sure there is something appropriate, a kind of a, a sort of similar risk-based approach to that that Amy talked about around climate risk uh, for boards through corporate governance in Guernsey. It's certainly, I think, something that encourages that disclosure and that conversation where appropriate around nature is going to be really important just to make sure we protect ourselves and our industry as a, as a jurisdiction. But the third piece, and I think that underlines all of this, is really um, when we, is the other side of what we think about when we think of an uh, international finance sector, an uh, international finance centre. We think of it as conduits of capital, but also hubs of expertise. And so it's this investment that we have to make as an island in new skills, new capabilities, and that kind of sort of fusion, I suppose, of different parts of the financial services ecosystem and that um, innovation. Uh, and really making sure then we're building on our reputation um, to be really credible in this space and to make sure we have the market access and the business opportunity for the islands. It's really about skills and capabilities. Speaking of disclosures, I understand that the uh, final TNFD framework released just ahead of uh, Sustainable Finance Week, so obviously very timely for your event. Um, Amy, can you talk a little bit about what the framework covers and how it helps with the issues that we're discussing today? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it was uh, hot off the press ahead of our event. Um, just like the TCFD for climate, the TNFD provides a risk management and disclosure framework for nature. And it's been deliberately built to mirror the TCFD for climate um, in the hope of inspiring joint approaches um, there are also four disclosure pillars. So firstly, governance. So what management and what oversight structures does the business have over nature-related dependencies, um, impacts, risks, and opportunities? The second pillar looks at strategy. So what, if, what effects do the nature-related dependencies, impacts, these risks, opportunities actually have on the business model and strategy? What transition plans are there in place? Um, and how resilient is the business in light of this assessment? Location data is really, really important. So where the business operations and the assets are, are situated, um, it's an important consideration in, in this context. The third pillar looks at risk and impact management. So this is looking at uh, the processes uh, that are used by management to identify and assess, to prioritize, uh, and to monitor the nature-related dependencies the impacts, the risks, and the opportunities. And then the fourth pillar is the targets and metrics. Uh, so requiring disclosure around exactly what metrics and what targets are being used by management to assess the material nature, risks, impacts, and, and opportunities. So that probably looks quite familiar to many. Um, it's very consistent with the TCFD and indeed the other key frameworks that we're seeing emerge, such as the ISSB sustainability standards, um, the ESRS, so the European Sustainability Reporting Standards, these are all built on the strong foundations and that architecture of the TCFD following that same, same framework. Um, in terms of the, the detailed disclosure requirements that underpin these four pillars that I've just summarized, they're mostly very similar to what's required by the TCFD, but there are two additional ones. Um, and these additions to the climate disclosures reflect both that twin focus on risk and on impact. So coming to that double materiality assessment uh, when considering nature. And then also, I, I touched on it earlier, because nature is so place-based, location level uh, information is, is critical. 
Absolutely. Now, just thinking about where someone would start here, presumably as ever, the most helpful starting point uh, is, is to think about governance. What advice, Amy, would you have for businesses here in Guernsey on that, how to get started? Mm, I think you're exactly right, Rosie. Um, of particular relevance to us in the Channel Islands in Guernsey is that critical role that governance plays in all of this. Um, the film that we screen put it really nicely. We need to, every, every major decision that we make needs to be reflecting the consequences for nature. Um, so yes, whilst the TNFD that we've just spoken about is not yet mandatory, um, it's quite recently been released, but if we look to the TNFD to guide best practice, what we should be thinking about in terms of governance, governance um, it requires disclosure by company of the board's oversight role in nature-related dependencies, thinking about the impacts, risks, and opportunities. So for investment funds, given the, given the Guernsey context, this means being really clear on the governance structures and the mechanisms for board oversight and challenge, where need be, over the investment manager's activities in terms of um, thinking about investment sourcing, due diligence, screening, ex exits, et cetera, um, and that oversight will become increasingly important. Um, and then also just linking back to, to, to what Ali touched on in terms of the opportunity for Guernsey as a jurisdiction acting as a conduit for capital into these nature uh, positive solutions um, and the fact that we have this regulatory regime to facilitate this, appropriate governance is really key here. And, and in terms of, just coming back to the question, in terms of the overall agenda, how to get started, um, the TNFD does actually have a recommended practical approach. And I think I'll, I'll actually pass to James to just talk in a bit more detail uh, how we're working with our financial uh, sector clients to approach this. Yeah, yeah, sure, happy to. Um, yeah, I think I think uh, it's important to state that a lot of financial institutions are, you know, very early stage of this journey. Um, but we sort of recommend a quite basic sort of four-step process. Number one is, is scoping, really understanding the regulations that impact your organization now and are likely to impact your organization in the future that are coming down the pipeline. Um, I think it's part of the scoping phase, establishing a governance structure, so who's going to be responsible um, for biodiversity within your institution is absolutely crucial. And the, the third sort of subcomponent of this, um, I think doesn't get talked about enough, is um, appreciating that you know, nature isn't new. I think, you know, um, you know Ali, so at the beginning, she's a career professional within sustainability. I'm sure she'll tell you, you know, that if we go back sort of five, six, seven years pre- the net zero booms, I call it, which has been fantastic, amazing in terms of the progress we've seen from corporates and governments on net zero. When we talk about the E of ESG environment, it was kind of interchangeable between climate and nature and almost hard to say which one was more important on agendas. And so companies will have already be interacting with nature and collect nature-related data. There's, there's no textile company worth its salt that doesn't understand its water footprint. So really understanding what your organization is already doing on nature is critical. I think it's also um, alleviates uh, concerns among your key stakeholders that this is something completely brand new and a mountain to climb. Um, taking stock of what you're already doing and then understanding what your future ambition is, though, how you're going to build upon your current baseline. The second step is to evaluate. Um, so I think you know, there, there's Amy said there's 
very good guidance from TNFD around how you do this. So they have the um, LEAP framework. And in particular, as Amy said, locating your interface with nature and then like evaluating your nature-related impacts and dependencies. So both how you're directly impacting nature, but how your services and functions are dependent on nature. Obviously, that then dictates the level of risk you're exposed to. Um, and then from that, as well as understanding your risk, you can also start to maybe identify opportunities um, that a nature-related strategy will provide your business um the third is then target setting so as i say we've understood now from steps one and two what we're already doing on nature where we're exposed to nature what the opportunities are what our level of ambition is so then what are our kpis and objectives and that we're going to agree with key stakeholders in terms of where do you want to be with regards to our impact dependency on nature's by 2030 as a very clear interim step and the fourth um reporting so how are you going to keep your key stakeholders and shareholders and, and the society in general up to date with how you're progressing against the strategy? So what data do you already have to know that reporting? What data do you need? So sort of data gap analysis, um, how you're going to monitor the change you're bringing about, and then how you're going to report. Is that going to be a separate standalone report? Is it going to be integrated into a standalone report? Or is it going to be fully integrated into an annual report? Um, yeah, so I think those are four easier said than done steps but hopefully provide a bit of clarity absolutely easier said than done but um you know we've, we've all got to start somewhere haven't we that's fascinating thank you so much um amy ali and james for your time and for your insights today i'm afraid that's all we've got time for but it has been absolutely fascinating to have you on the podcast and hear your thoughts and we very much look forward to hearing um what's coming out of pwc in in the near future um, I'd also like to uh, say thank you to you for listening to today's podcast. We have quite a back catalogue of interviews and panel discussions for the Sustainable Finance Guernsey podcast channel. You can check them out uh, by searching for Sustainable Finance Guernsey wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review or a comment. Uh, we always love to receive your feedback. And we'll be back soon with another edition. Thanks for listening. <laughs>